Diamond K Talk YA now presents Days of Blood and Starlight, Part 2, from the Daughter of Smoke and Bone Trilogy by Lonnie Taylor. Welcome back, everyone, to MNK Talk YA. I'm Kitty Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week, we finished up the second book in the Daughter of Smoke and Bone trilogy by Lonnie Taylor. This book was called Days of Blood and Starlight. And it was big. Oh, it was gut-wrenching. I kind of forgot some of the details, so I think we've mentioned this in every episode so far. We've both actually read this series before, but are rereading it, obviously, right now. Years later. And I kind of forgot. I think I blocked some of this stuff out in my... I, like, remembered a lot of cool, fun scenes, and I forgot about some of this really dark stuff that happened. Oh my gosh. There was, like, almost nothing good that happened. Just a whole string of truly horrific things. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Should we just start from the... Like, where we left off? Because I was trying to think of, like, oh my gosh, where do we even delve into this? Yeah, I was so, like, well, we left with Ziri coming back. Yeah, and Susanna and Mick had, like, pretty much just arrived. Oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Yep. So, we found out more about what happened to Ziri when he was captured. And how he got back to them. Yeah. And it's kind of cool that um, Akiva used his hummingbird moth thing to create a distraction so that Ziri could escape. It's also kind of interesting that that's sort of his signature, like both it gave Ziri and Kairu kind of an indication that it was Akiva, but it also later on, um, Jail knew that it was Akiva too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was just, oh, it was such a sad scene. It was just so horrible to hear everything that happened to him. I can't even imagine like having gone through what he went through, even having that opportunity to escape, like having to rip your hand out. Oh my god. And and being fed the ashes of your dead comrades. Yeah. I'm surprised and glad though that he still, he did bring the souls back, correct? Yeah, he gleaned Amzalag and all of the other people in his unit. And he was able to glean um, the Dashnag boy, Roth. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot that. And I forgot that, that yeah. and that made me so happy. Agreed. He was a good guy. It's it's so interesting, though, because I still have, and I know I do this, like, in every book, where I'm like, if I were the bad guy, I would be, like, I'm like, I wouldn't, if we knew they were gleaning the souls, I would have destroyed that thurible, thur, what do you say, thurible? Oh, the thurible, yeah. Because they just kind of left it there, but I guess they didn't think he was going to escape. I know. I think that the problem with a lot of villains, well, a lot of people in good and bad in the books that we read and in the world in general is that they're like so cocky though (laughs) they're like yeah they're overconfident yeah they're not gonna get out of here because that's what Thiago thought which is why he like told everyone about their resurrectionist and yeah that's kind of what happens with jail too so I'm taking notes for when I take over the world (laughs) (laughs) don't get cocky just kidding I'll probably tell everyone on the podcast what I'm planning to do so yeah (laughs) I don't keep secrets well, you know that. <laughs> well, that's also bad. So I don't I don't really know what the the right way to do it is, but yeah. Um, but it is kind of interesting that moment to whenever Ziri's captured because we see uh Hazel and Laraz are kind of watching from the sidelines and they're and Laraz especially is like mesmerized when she's watching him fight. And it's the first time where mm-hmm. like she kind of understands why Akiva fell in love with Magical because they were like, when she found out that Magical was also Karin, like Ziri, she kind of softened a little bit and she felt like pity towards this soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really liked when you saw Karu trying to like rebuild his body though, to try and preserve his original flesh. I know. I'm so glad that she was able to do that. And it's so sad because now he's thrown it away for a good cause. But, you know, after going through both of them, going through all of that, and in general, I feel like him having his original body was sort of this symbol for, 
you know, the future of the group in some ways. Like, the fact that they didn't have to go through this kind of horrible thing. And then to have them come back, to have them step up to that role in such a challenging situation. And seeing them both struggle with who he looks like now. The fact that he's in Thiago's body. Okay, yeah. All right, let's talk about that scene. Because that was like... I don't even want to talk about it. I know, I know. It was so awful. But, you know, I... I read that scene where Thiago tries to rape Karu and it made me um, pick up more on like all the other signs of sexual violence that are in this book. And they're really scattered throughout the entire series. And like it made the other ones, I think, stand out a little bit more to me because like Mm -hmm. even in the beginning in the first book, like way back when we have Karu where she is kind of upset because she lost her virginity to, to uh, Casimir and she kind of feels like this precious thing has been stolen from her. And then you have when she's magical mm-hmm. and she's like being claimed by the, um, by the white wolf and she's just kind of going along with emotions and she's even asking herself like, if Akiva hadn't showed up, would I have gone through with this? Would I have like submitted to him? And she kind of admits to herself that like she probably would have let the tide carry her and never never have spoken up and said something because she just felt so powerless in that situation. And it was just so sad, but like such a reality that so many Mm -hmm. women face. And so it was kind of like... Well, and we see it on the angel side too. I mean, Jail is obviously our main... uh, I mean, we've already talked about him a little bit in terms of some of that stuff, but the emperor too and the way that all of these women are prisoners like even hearing about how their wings are pinned back and they're escorted by six guards across a bridge you know to be brought to the emperor to raise his or to have an army of bastards for him and you know it's it's just it is really prevalent across both worlds and for sure and then even at the end when Jal was like trying to capture Laraz Mm -hmm. and it was like and she was afraid for like one of the first times because it was like that was one of her worst fears that was coming true mm-hmm. um, yeah but it is it is in both worlds and it and I think it kind of speaks to the fact that like this is everywhere this kind yeah. of you know sexual violence is in the chimera world it's in the angel world and it's in our world mm-hmm. so it felt like a purposeful statement that the author made mm-hmm and it, I don't know, it was just sad because, like, I went to the Women's March on Sunday or on Saturday in Chicago. And then I came home and I was like, oh, you know, that was so great. I was feeling so uplifted. And then I came back and that was the scene that I read mm-hmm. when Thiago tries to rape crew. And I was just, I got so depressed again. Well, and even the fact that she can't talk about it with anyone, I mean, like, just... The way she has to deal with it now, and even though, yes, technically Thiago is dead, but she has to see him. Oh my god. Still, all the time, and there, and knowing that all those people knew at least to some extent what he was going to do, at least that he, I mean, maybe they were in some form of denial, hopefully, at least a little bit, although even that could even be worse, but no one, like, left them alone thinking they were going to have a nice little chat and everything would be fine, like, knowing that all those people are looking at her and assuming, I don't know, just, it's, Yeah. That bothered me, too. I hated how the chimera just left her with him. Well, again, I mean, it's such a statement of Thiago getting somewhat cocky with his power, too. But he had just killed everyone who stood with her, even when she was delivering this message of hope. And, I mean, I really do think everyone was scared, at least. I mean, like, it's it's sad. It kind of speaks also, if you look at the world as a whole, you know, like the idea of I'm not going to speak up because... I'm going to protect myself. Or, you know, I mean, like, there's there's a lot of things going on. Well, it's on, a fear but... of, yeah, and it's like a fear of retaliation and just, like, in the fear of, in, in the feeling of just being completely mm-hmm. powerless, too, right? And that's, like, we've seen that so much lately, even just in our world, you know? It's just, like, what happened with Aziz Ansari mm-hmm. or, like, the, um, the story cat person that came out. And so many people... It drives me absolutely bonkers, but so many people are like, well, why didn't they just speak up? Like, why didn't they just say something? And it's like, how do you not understand that it's, there's a reason that they don't speak up and it's because they feel just completely powerless. Well, yeah. And I volunteer with the Catholic Church and I work with kids, so I just had to go to like a training yesterday about, 
you know, how to work with kids and create a safe environment for them. And it was a lot about sexual abuse in general mm-hmm. with children and creating a safe environment at the church, especially, but in general, uh, you know, looking out for children mm-hmm. and, you know, part of it is like a kid might not even be able to tell you what happened to them or might, you know, like, how do you kind of look for the signs and create a wall to protect them up front so that people don't have to a experience these stories mm-hmm. and b it shouldn't necessarily be on them to have to then relive them by telling you about it, you know? Oh yeah. yeah. They shouldn't be responsible yeah. for that. And especially, I think, especially girls, girls, mm-hmm. the way they're socialized, like, I think that is really at the heart of it, you know, like, girls are often trained to, you know, be polite and prioritize the needs of others over themselves. And so all that creates this kind of socialized, internalized mm-hmm. behavior, where you feel like you can't speak up whenever something's happening that you're not comfortable with. And most sexual predators of I think all ages are people you know. So it's also, you know, like, and it's people oh, right. that your friends and your family know. And, like, that whole aspect of upsetting your community plays a role in it, too. And, sure. I mean, Kairu was seeing that, too, because she was like, if I go back and tell them what happened, they're going to make me bring him back to life. Like, she knew that. Yeah. And. Yeah, you know, and today, did you see that Larry Nassar got sentenced today? I saw, like, a headline, but I haven't read much about it. I was just thinking about that because I was like we're recording this episode on the day that he got sentenced he got 40 to 175 years um and there were like I think it was like 156 women who stood up to speak against him I have like such mixed feelings because I'm like good that we're doing something about it but also like how terrible that it you know it that it got that bad so yeah exactly that it's not happening until now it should have happened decades ago yeah and I mean it even makes me wonder about like so with Jail and the Emperor, we know that they kind of have a history of this stuff. Like, I wonder if Thiago, what else he's done, if anything else from his past. Like, is it really just because of her and his, like, need, like, feeling rejected for, by her and all this stuff? Or, you know, usually it's more of a longer standing. Yeah. Or just a power thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, man, that scene when when you thought that she brought him back to life, the first time I read that, mm-hmm. I had a complete meltdown. <laughs> because and I think I texted you about it because I was like her if she had to resurrect him it was just beyond cruel to me and I couldn't accept that she had to bring him back to life after she successfully fought him off and killed him and then it was just like the best feeling whenever you read those words where it was like of course it wasn't the white wolf yeah but also I mean it wasn't like because it's not the white wolf it's fine again you see them both still struggling obviously with not only the the effect of that experience, but also the fact that Ziri looks like the white, he's in his body. It's his body. And he's pretending to be the white wolf. Like he's trying to pass himself off as the white wolf. So he, it's not even like, it's just, it's a very weird, hard situation. And I, even though it's better than her actually bringing him back, it's not really like the win that you'd want necessarily either. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Especially since we find out that Ziri really kind of has a really big crush on Karu Mm -hmm. and, and, He's been kind of longing for the day when she'll see him, not as a child, but as, like, you know, an, an adult that she might love. Mm-hmm. And then he's, like, what cruel irony that he is trapped in a body now that she finds just completely repulsive. Mm-hmm. And that he does, too. I mean, he's not, like... Sure. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And he threw away his bo- his original body for her. That was so sad when he was when he was just, like... I know exactly what I need to do. And that's the end of their that's the end of their species for both of them. Like think how sad it is on that side too. I know he's the last of their kind. It really is just awful. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that she gave him a piece of his horn though. Like I know that yeah. she was kind of like I know it's weird that I have this. <laughs> and it's like yeah, it was kind of weird that you kept that, but also <laughs> like it's probably nice now. <laughs> and don't read too much into it. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> Yeah, because she kind of knows he had a crush on her. Kind of an awkward exchange, <laughs> like a weird trophy. Hey, I have your old tennis shoe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I have all your baby teeth that I collected. <laughs> uh, but now that I, now that Thiago's gone, I feel like they really have a better chance. And now that Akiva has kind of rallied all the misbegotten together, yeah. Well, he he had a great plan, and it went like seventy eight percent according to plan, but the piece that didn't go according to plan was kind of a big piece still. Like, luckily... Hazel. Yeah. 
Luckily, is and that what also, you're talking about? yeah, Hazel died, oh. and they didn't get rid of Jail, who I think in some ways is worse than the Emperor as a leader, because he already seems, like, more ruthless and whatnot on the one hand, and he also kind of seems smarter on the other hand, which is bad in a villain. Oh, for sure. He's definitely, like, the brains behind the operation, and when he, mm-hmm. like, he wanted Akiva to come and kill the Emperor... Because he knew that... Yeah, Akiva didn't trick anybody. I mean, I guess technically he tricked the Emperor, but he was a pawn in the bigger game. And I feel like he should have maybe expect, like, when it was so easy and he's never been called to the Emperor before, I feel like... That's true. And he just had his sword glamoured and, like, nobody noticed. Yeah. But they're not, I guess, they're not political. Like, this is kind of a first step for them. Like, they've been soldiers for a long time, but they haven't really been playing the politics game before him and his siblings hazel that's and true and that's true they've kind of been kept apart from that but now hazel being gone i know and he was he died like trying to protect Loraz. Mm-hmm. and she already has so much uh so many walls up to say the mm-hmm. least and she already doesn't really like kairu just for a lot of reasons like even i actually really like that scene when she was kind of reflecting on her brother and I felt like it wasn't because she was Chimera or or anything like that. It was like, I love my brother. He's done all this stuff for you, and you keep breaking his heart. Basically, and she doesn't know the whole story or details. And but like as a sibling, I totally related to that. Like yeah, like just from that point of view. So she kind of I think already feels like you're supposed to be able to ri- raise people from the dead. Why won't you help my brother? And she wanted to. Yeah, and even though she wanted to, like. They just didn't understand enough about how it worked. Yeah. And that's what's so sad is, like, they just didn't know that they needed a thoroughbore. Like, they needed to preserve the souls. And Although, even if they did, it sounds like uh, the crazy magic that happened to help them get away, I don't know if they could have done anything. That's true. Like, Anyways. his soul just might have been lost. Yeah. I mean, with them being thrown out of the castle and all this other stuff, like, if he was physically separate, unless his soul was still there for a minute or if they had time to do it beforehand, but... But I feel like her offering, at least, to to bring him back might help. Yeah. Because, you know, she kind of, again, stepped... She she was also the one to decide, like, yes, okay, you killed my family, um, and I didn't want to forgive you, but you also freed Ziri, and you brought me Issa. Mm-hmm. Akiva brings her Issa in the, in the Thurible, and... It's like she makes the decision to be like, okay, enough, I'll help you. And we've already talked about it before, but breaking that cycle, right, is kind of the first step to break the vengeance, eye for an eye kind of mentality. Exactly. I really was confused, though, about the magic that that Akiva did. And I had to read that scene a couple times because I was like, what? Like, he just blew up the whole sky? Like, what happened And also, like, all of a sudden, like, yes, he's had an affinity for magic, to some extent the whole time, but it's he's worked really hard at it, and this was, like, accidental, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, because he just entered that state, that Sirithar state, and then it was just this extreme sense of calm. But I just don't know, and I guess he was thinking this, too. He was like, why did it come now? Why couldn't it have come yeah. when I needed to, like, right before I could have saved Hazel, or when Magical was killed? Like, why, why now? Yeah, yeah, and he hasn't even, it's not even like he's had crazy magic happen, but not on that scale before. It kind of seems like all the magic he's done before has been intentional, a lot of work, him understanding. So again, he has an affinity for it, but not that he like had some crazy, like, whatever happened there. (laughs) Yeah. And I wonder, and it doesn't even seem like it was triggered by anything, because it's, I mean, he's had his share of, you know, heartache and bad things Mm -hmm. happen to him. Maybe it was, um, ooh, theory. Okay. Maybe it was because he found out that his mother was Stalian, Mm -hmm. and he finds out that Festival, his mother, was the one who slashed um, Jail, Mm -hmm. and then, and he had in his mind that Jail was going to send him to be kind of um, a messenger to the Stalians, so maybe, like, that connection in his brain made him, like, access his magic. Well, yeah, and hearing more about his mother again helped him remember some things about her, too. Like, didn't he remember her saying something like, you're not theirs, and you're not mine? Yeah. Like, so I don't know if there was something else that, that he hasn't even realized yet, but from those early interactions that somehow he, like, 
open that part of his brain kind of again. Yeah, she like sparked his memory a little bit. And she was, I think she was like, you're your own person or something like that. Like they can't own you. But it makes you have so many questions about that group of angels off in the other side of the world who have been able to get through these angels' defenses, who... They sound so mysterious. Yeah. They're not willing to really engage with this group. But they also are so powerful. I like when, when they sent the message being like, we're going to wage war against you. And they were like, oh, no, thank you. We're good. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and then they send the fruit basket. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. But it's also interesting to see, again, the difference between the emperor and jail. Because we already talked about how we were worried about guns coming into this world. Or maybe we didn't talk about it. But Kairu was even saying, like, I intentionally haven't told the chimera about it. Because it will just make this cycle we're in all the more deadly. Mm-hmm. And, um, what's his name? Rasket? Ras- yep. He lets them know about guns and they're planning to come into the world <laughs> with these white gowns and ask for guns and just really play into. And there's already all this hysteria since Akiva's been there about these angel cults and stuff we know about. So, yeah, they're dragging us down with them <laughs> or I'm into sure this that mess. That will go over well. Yeah. <laughs> kind of crazy. There's a lot. There's a lot going on, to say the least. Yeah, oh my gosh, there really is. I just can't imagine how the world is going to react when a horde of angels just descends on them. And they're, like, relying on the fact that so many people in the human world, like, worship angels. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you got to think about all the chaos it would cause here, too, because yes, there are definitely people who would worship angels, but humans are not really, like, you know, we have enough of our own issues, so <laughs> I can only imagine. And we're, we're, I just can't imagine them just, like, giving firearms to this, like, random group of people that just came out of the sky. And I don't even remember, so I'm not giving anything away, I'm really, like, like, the communication aspect and the, like, what do you, what's the, they don't know enough about human, the human world to even, like, know how to appeal to humans or, like, give a convincing story about angels unless, I guess, Razgood is their advisor, but. Ooh, yeah. I mean, they've been wanting to get their hands on... Karu, not, I mean, they don't know that she's the angels. Do they know that Karu's human? I mean, they know that they have a new resurrectionist, but I feel like if they find out she's human, they'll want to use her as kind of leverage or something. Yeah. Well, what the humans know, they've seen, they may not know. Yeah, no, they already know who she is. They know she's an enemy of the angels, right? Yes. Because she's been on the news as like fighting the angels, even though they don't know how many there are. And then on the flip side, we have at least some knowledge that there's a resurrectionist out there because... Ziri was collecting souls, and they caught him doing it, so. <sighs> and we only have one book left. I know. It's a big I one, feel like I feel like we, like, resolve some things, like, you know, we killed the Emperor, we killed Thiago, but we also, like, brought angels into this world. There's, like, angels on the far side, of, like, of the world. The misbegotten have left the army. The Stalians the, are doing something. Just, like, you know, all this stuff is, like, like, we've solved two problems, like, one step forward, three steps back kind of thing, sort of feels like. Yeah, but at least a lot of the Chimera are kind of starting to rally around Karu. Yeah, well, and we've lost some of the bigger enemies in yeah. some ways, and with Thiago not being real Thiago, we won't have to, we can, like, pick the people we want to bring back to life to help them. Yeah, because Ten is now Hexaya. The yep. friends, which is great, and I think who's kind of entertaining too already. Yeah, she was just like Who I always I wanted to be or whatever or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> but I think like Karu's speech to the other Chimera when she was telling them like she was kind of shaming them a little bit, right, for going on the um, expedition to kill angel civilians instead of protecting the Chimera, and when she was like, "Our people died watching the skies for you," like thinking that you would come rescue them. I think. You could tell, like, that affected them deeply. So I feel like... Well, and again, the challenge of what is the future you're working for. Yeah. And also the knowledge that there are people in the country who were kind of counting on you guys to someday come and help up, help them. Right, right. right. And, and also, I mean, the message that Brimstone leaves them, that there are more Chimera who are trapped in the cathedral. Yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and their souls can be gleaned. And, like, I think, then they say one of... That Amzalag's children could be down there. So, like, now they have... Well, they they said all the children and mothers were down there and some volunteers, which is also amazing and beautiful, like, from a community aspect. Yeah. Enough people had to volunteer to basically be slaughtered so that the angels wouldn't be too suspicious about right. where everyone was. And then the rest of them went into the cathedral knowing that they might never be resurrected. 
but again, just having this hope. Yeah. That's... And it's also crazy, like, that Brim's, I mean, it was their only hope on the one hand, and but when he died, he gave her a wishbone that she didn't even know she was supposed to break that had all of her memories from her previous life trapped in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. there's so many things that could have gone wrong or could have taken a lot longer to happen. <laughs> I know. But... It's good that Akiva was there, who was like, I know what to do. <laughs> I wonder what would have happened if she just, like, kept living her human life for, like, another 30 years and then, like, one day broke the wish, but I was like, oh, and then, like, The Chimera would have all died. 30 more years. I know, there wouldn't have been anyone left except all the souls. But they would have ever evanesced. Oh, the ones in the cathedral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that could have been bad. <laughs> so did you research anything this week? I did. So I know I went kind of depressing last week, so I tried not <laughs> to go super depressing. I went really week. happy, too, this week. <laughs> Okay. Also, I mean, it was just heavy. Like, we already talked yeah. about some really depressing stuff. Obviously, there was a lot we could have done there. But, um, so one of the things I liked was sort of in the in between Ziri's return and all the bad stuff that happened at the end, she sort of has her gang together. Kairu has Issa, she has Susanna, she has Mick, kind of all helping her with different aspects of bringing monsters back to life and starting to kind of crank it out a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I loved was when she... We talked about this before, like, the wing ratio issues that she was having and how Mick was like, oh, I'm good at math. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of curious about this wing stuff. Oh, like, how big do wings have to be to carry you? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that would be my contribution in the group, too. Like, you'd be the artist, like, doing all this stuff, and I'd be like, I'll do some math equations to help everyone out. So (laughs) We'd be a good team. (laughs) I did some research on wing aspect ratios, and specifically, I found this. Um, world building stack exchange thing where people were talking about how big a pair of wings would have to be so a human could fly. Ooh! <laughs> so this is just like random people like talking on a chain so I'm not sure about the necessarily the science behind it but I thought it was just really interesting to like read about some of this stuff. So um, <laughs> first of all this one article he's like according to Google the average body mass globally is 62 kilograms but North Americans weigh 82 kilograms. Okay. So I'm like, of course, we're the fat, we're the fatties. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> and if we say the average gravity is 0.6 G's, that's like 38 kilograms that you'd have to lift, I guess. So you'd need 68 square meters, which would be a wingspan of eight and a half meters. What? If you assume like square wings would work. So that's like really rough calculations. And that's assuming the wings themselves don't have any extra weight. Wait, eight and a half <laughs> meters? Yeah. So that's what this guy is saying. Oh my god, that's huge. So then there's a bunch of like equations, like area equals lift force over half velocity times velocity times air density times the lift coefficient. And there's like this equation that just looks uh, intimidating, like something I probably had to memorize in school and then promptly forgot after my test. Mm -hmm. But uh, (laughs) my favorite, and I don't know how real this is, but this guy goes, the only way humans could ever fly is by being little flying angels. Let me explain. (laughs) What if we had some sort of genetic mutation to human DNA so that we'd stop growing around four years old? Oh my god, that'd be terrifying. He goes, oh, but that might impact our cognitive function, so we might need to have some more modifications to our DNA to allow our heads to be bigger in proportion to the rest of our body. So now imagine a four-year-old with a giant head. Like Stewie okay. from Family Guy, essentially. And then we, yeah, <laughs> and then we need to modify our DNA so that we could actually have wings with the correct like muscle cardiovascular stuff to fly them. So he said, given this stuff, we'd be about 50 to 20 kilograms, which is about an albatross size. (laughs) So we could potentially fly at that rate. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But in general, the wing aspect ratio though, so it's also interesting because we use it for planes and we use it for birds. Okay. Or I mean, birds just... Birds are just... Like, like... we can study birds to see the different (laughs) ways they fly, so... I mean, you've probably noticed different size birds or types of birds kind of like glide or flap or, you know, are more maneuverable or less maneuverable in the air and have different speed. Like, Mm -hmm. there's different kinds of wings, essentially. Um, And we've studied a lot about that to figure out how to set up planes. Okay. So the aspect ratio is wing length over wing width. Okay. And if you have a higher aspect ratio, which is like thinner, long wings then you'll get more lift, which is better for, like, endurance flight. Oh, so, like, birds that have to travel long distances. Yeah. Or they also said to think about it, like, a high-aspect ratio wing is, like, someone on a tightrope. You know how we've talked about this before, the long pole. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
um, it's kind of like a similar thing, but you don't have as much maneuverability. So if you have a low aspect ratio, you'll be, it'll, it's like more like close squat wings <laughs> and you can do more like in the air. So that would be like all, you know, the planes that do tricks and stuff like that would be more of a lower aspect ratio. Oh, okay. And it would make you kind of more agile. Yep. Gotcha. So there's trade-offs there. So yeah, that's kind of, I, and there's like more stuff, but a lot of it was so, actually not that interesting unless you really like math. So how big would my wings have to be or your wings? Really, really big is the moral of the story. Okay. <laughs> like, basically, we, that's probably why Kairu can just fly without wings because it was, like, way too complicated to figure out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's why she did that, but. <laughs> and that's also when <laughs> but she, I would believe it. when they were, like, she and Ziri and Mick and Susanna were all tithing together, creating bodies, and they were, and she was just, like, it was fun, but it was also uncomfortable because, like, Ziri's wings didn't even fit in the room. Like, they were, like, squashing everyone, so that makes sense. Well, and I think that it is, like, sort of bigger than you would think. Like, it's not proportional to, like, what you would visually think makes sense. So I think that's probably also why she got it off at first when she didn't know all the math behind it, because it probably, like, looked fine, but it just <laughs> yeah. couldn't lift weight. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it has to be so big to lift that much mass. And also, they have mass, so, like, the bigger the, they are, yeah. the more mass they have to lift in the first place, so. Huh. Very interesting. So, yeah, that was kind of some of my fun research. And then I also looked up some of the more um, crazy assassin- assassination plots that have happened. Oh, because of Akiva trying to kill Jail, or Joram? Yep. yep. Okay. Specifically his success with the Emperor, but, yeah. So, are these crazy assassination plots in history, like, throughout history? Yep, so this is this article is called The Ten Craziest Failed Assassination Attempts. Oh, I looked up failed ones because, again, I wanted something kind of happy, so I didn't want to hear about people who were actually killed. Good idea. <laughs> and this is from complex.com. I have no idea what kind of website that is. This is probably not reliable. <laughs> um, it's half the fun. <laughs> Wondering if the stuff we tell you is actually true is half the fun. <laughs> well, so some of them I double-checked on other sites to, like, Oh, like verify they were based on fact. That's like, good of you. One of the first ones that I read about was about Theodore Roosevelt, and I didn't. I had never heard this before, which might just mean I need to read more about history. But um, I guess there he was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and this guy named John Schrank, who was a saloon owner, um, shot him. But he had he had a steel glasses case and a fifty-page speech that were folded into his what? breast pocket. So even though Theodore Roosevelt was shot, the bullet just broke the skin and lodged itself in his chest. That's amazing. But instead of instead of going to the ER for a treatment, he went to go deliver a ninety-minute speech that he had already <laughs> scheduled. And he started it off with, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. This is a <laughs> and true that's how story? he started his speech. So at least the part where he was shot was true. I didn't read Oh my it. goodness, I never heard uh, that I didn't either. Do double checking. But yeah, I had never known that he had been like a failed assassination attempt against him by some random saloon. It owner. just went to work. <laughs> yep. Oh my god. That's insane. Well, I guess he definitely had what it took to be president. <laughs> <laughs> there was okay, wait, let me see if I can find. Okay, so William H. Seward? Seward? He was the U.S. Secretary of State back when um, Abraham Lincoln was president. Okay. And so John Wilkes Booth was supposed to kill Abraham Lincoln, and this guy, George Atzerat, was supposed to kill Andrew Johnson, and someone else was supposed to kill Seward. What was his name? Uh, Lewis Powell. Okay. So Seward was at home, and he was bedridden at the time, because nine days before this, he had been injured in, like, some kind of carriage accident. So he was just, like, lying in bed, and Powell showed up, and his plan was to just walk into his house to give him some medicine. But really, he was going to, like, go in and kill him. So he, like, walks into the house, and Seward's oldest son, Frederick, is like, oh, sorry, my dad's asleep. I'll take the medicine to him when he wakes up. And so Powell freaks out, because he doesn't have a backup plan and, like, can't handle surprise, I guess. So he tries to shoot Frederick, but his gun misfires, and he took, he was, like, beating Frederick over the head with the gun. Oh, my God. But while he was doing this, Seward's daughter, Fanny, like, heard them, and discovered them or whatever. Yeah. No, she didn't take him out. She, like, walked after them. So Powell's still like, I need to get in there and kill Seward with my dagger. So he just barges into Seward's room and he stabs him multiple times in the face and neck and then runs away. And in the process, he ends up injuring 
Seward's other son, a soldier, a nurse, and a messenger, who were, like, oh all God. in the house. Everyone survived. So much for being, like, covert. <laughs> or, like, so much for I, trying to be sneaky. I know. It's like, oh, I'm just gonna go give some medicine. But then it's like, oh, sorry, I'll take that to my dad. And you don't have, like, any kind of backup plan or, like, oh, it's, like, hard to administer, blah, blah, blah. Like, you can't come up with something to say, so you just freak out and start, like, trying to shoot everyone and... Oh my god. All this stuff. Anyways, everyone lived, and he was later captured and hung for being part of a conspiracy to kill everybody. Good. Yeah. I'm so glad everyone survived, because that could have been really horrific. Yeah, I mean, some of these stories, there were, like, side people who got killed, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, what was another one? So, FDR... Giuseppe Zangara tried to kill him February 15th, 1933. Um... <laughs> when he was giving a speech in Miami and this guy was only five foot tall. So he had to stand on a folding chair in order to like the joke is he came up short quite literally in killing (laughs) FDR. Um, So he stood on this chair so he could better target FDR. And after he shot off one shot, the whole crowd like started hitting him and, you know, knocked him down. They probably like turned around and there was one guy just standing on a chair. (laughs) Yeah. So he sent off four more shots. So five people were actually hit. Um, and one of them was the mayor of Chicago and that Anton Cermak was his name. And he actually did die from his wounds that night, but not till six weeks later. And again, like he didn't have any other plan other than being super obvious and standing on a chair and then running, like hoping to run away. Well, he was uh, mentally unstable, so that might've contributed to it. Like that he hadn't thought it all through maybe. Yeah. I feel like anyone who tries to do that is probably in some way a little mentally unstable. Yeah, or, I mean, like, some people do think it through and, like, believe they're, I mean, I guess a little bit mentally that's true, unstable, that's true. but I think for some people it really is, like, a political move and, like, a bigger scheme that you fully believe in, but, okay, I'm gonna, like, ruin all of these names because I can't pronounce anything, but <laughs> there was this July 1997 attack by some Palestinian suicide bombers on a market in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and the Israeli Prime Minister ordered two Israeli Mossad agents to assassinate Mashal, who was the Jordanian branch chief of Palestinian Sunni Islamic political party Hamas. Okay. So the agents went into the city, and they had Canadian passports, and they were just waiting for this guy at his office. And as he walked in, one agent injected a chemically modified toxin called levofentanyl into his left ear. His ear? But I guess his chauffeur oh like saw what was going on, and so he hit the guy with a newspaper... <laughs> and they chased them out to their car, and so the, these two guys were caught, and the king of Jordan um, forced them to hand over an antidote because they got Bill Clinton to persuade him, apparently, to give over the antidote. But that was back in 1997. They just had an antidote. I mean, I guess I would think if you're carrying around a t- toxin, you'd have to have some kind of antidote in case you accidentally... Ingest it. Squirt it yeah. in your own ear. Yeah. But I just thought it was funny. It was, like, in his left ear. That's, like, the worst wet lily in the entire world. And then I like that he's just swatted him with a newspaper, and that made him retreat. (laughs) Weird choice of weapon. (laughs) I know. Well, and then you hear all these stories. I'm sure you've heard some of these about um, Fidel Castro, like, all the different crazy ways people tried to kill him. Oh, yeah. And, like, a lot of them had to do with he, like, really liked scuba diving. So, like, they tried to, like, put some, like, fungal thing, deadly skin thing into his scuba tank or scuba suit or put these like colorful mollusks with bombs in them like in the ocean so we'd go and like swim over to them and they oh like oh my god i don't know it's just like it's kind of funny like the obscure ways that people will try to assassinate someone and get away with it or like make it look like an accident yeah or just like don't even think it through like if you're trying to assassinate like a serious important bigwig there are safeguards against that. And have a plan B. Have it, Just yeah. have a plan B. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So those are some of the funnier stories that I read. I haven't heard of a lot of those, so. I know, even some of the ones where I, like, know the famous person, but I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't realize that there was, like, a failed assassination attempt. Um, there I was, wonder how many there are kind of that we just never hear of. I mean, there's, like, I guess, stay under how, like, close do you have to be for it to be an assassination attempt that fails? Like, if they catch you and you're, like... You know what I mean? Like, at what point do you, does it, like, make the news, even? Because yeah. I'm sure there's lots of people who are like, oh, I want to kill Trump. But, like, at what point does it become a plot that is then intervened versus just, like, an idea that doesn't come to fruition? It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. But 
Yeah, there's some crazy stuff. It made me feel better. Oh, so this is back. There was this uh, Nero, the emperor, back in like 54 AD. Mm-hmm. His mother, Agrippina, that's probably not how you say it, but basically he wanted all the power and she still had a lot of it, so he wanted to get rid of his mom. And there were a bunch of failed attempts that he had to try to do that that are kind of crazy, especially given the time. Oh, no. So he had a mechanical ceiling put into his mom's bed, like over his a mom's what? bed. Oh, a ceiling. Yeah. And the idea okay. was that when it was activated, it would crush her to death. Oh, my God. But that, that sounds like work. something that would happen in the show Rain, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, actually. But it also seems like a lot, like, wouldn't you be like, why are you working on my seat? Like, how do you just put in a mechanical ceiling? Yeah, and then it collapses. Whoops. I had nothing to do with it. Especially if you're, like, suspicious that someone's going to try to kill you. Isn't poison just the way to go back then? I don't know. But uh, then I guess he focused a lot of his energy on trying to drown her. So supposedly he instructed captains of other vessels to, like, hit her ship until it sank. And then he had a boat that was supposed to, it was like a collapsible boat that he had specifically designed for her that it would sink when she was on board. <laughs> well, if it's a collapsible boat, of course it's going to sink. I could have told you that. <laughs> but, like, also, again, what is his mom? Like, I feel like these are, like, those elaborate things. Like, why build such a complicated thing that might fail and likely is going to draw attention to it? I'm imagining him just with, like, a paper boat being like, a step on board, mother. It's perfectly safe. You it, mom. Here, it's fine. I built it for you. Don't you trust me? So eventually he just went the old-fashioned way and had some assassins murder her and frame it as suicide. So. Oh, God. Well, yeah, you know, ten points for creativity. Oh, yeah, so some of these stories are just kind of funny. Um, well, my research was very lighthearted as well. Okay, let's hear it. So I liked the story about um, Zuzanna and Mick because there's, like, that scene where Ziri's kind of watching them and they're just being very loving and he was just kind of reflecting on the fact that he's been a child of war the entire his entire life and he's never really known personally, like, the type of love that exists or that he sees between Zuzanna and Mick and he's, like, kind of very fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And then we get the story of when Zuzanna was first attracted to Mick. She was kind of a little bit nervous that he would reject her Mm -hmm. and so she made him a treasure hunt okay can i just say one thing about that though yeah i feel like if i was nervous someone was gonna reject me i wouldn't put that much effort into giving them a chance (laughs) (laughs) yeah because if they don't like you back that's a crazy thing to do (laughs) like Plan an elaborate treasure hunt throughout the entire city of Prague, and then you're the prize. <laughs> and the prize is me. <laughs> that actually sounds exactly like something I think I would think is a good idea, but wouldn't it? It's it's it is very absurd. I will say that, but <laughs> you know what? It worked out well in this case because he did follow it, and they are very much in love. Um, so I was researching real life treasures, buried treasures that you could still find today. Ooh. Um. So the first one that I researched was the Forest Fen treasure. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't heard about any treasure shelf. I'd be off treasure hunting. Okay, this was one that I actually did verify by a couple other sources because I was reading about it and I was like, there's no way this is true. But, okay, so there was an art dealer from Santa Fe in 1988. He was diagnosed with cancer and he decided that he was going to fill a treasure chest with gold nuggets, coins, jewelry, gems and an olive jar holding his autobiography, and he was going to bury it. An olive jar? Mm -hmm. Well, just like a jar. Okay. I just feel like that's like an oddly specific, (laughs) my autobiography. I I could have left that part out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just a jar holding his autobiography. Um, But he ended up surviving cancer, so he waited to hide his treasure a little bit later. But it's somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, and it's worth over $2 million. And he published all of these books and, um, like, blogs online with clues on how to find the treasure. Interesting. And I guess people have been, like, dedicating their entire lives to try and solve all of the riddles that he's created and track down this treasure. And it's gotten to the point where there are two people who died looking for it, and authorities are like telling him like please call off the treasure hunt because people are you know injuring themselves trying to retrieve it so he's still alive yeah and he says that 
the treasure's not in a dangerous place, so, you know, it's not worth risking your life. Do you ever think, sorry, this is a weird thing to say. Do you ever think about, like, one day when I have a kid, I can just, like, make them dedicate their life to finding a treasure or something? Like, just, like, introduce it to them really young. And be like, yeah, just use your kids to do all the things you never achieved in your own life. Yeah, I'm going to be like, you're the one who's into treasure hunts, and you're the one. And you're going to be a yeah. figure skater and a, ba- a famous ballet I'm going to be a great dancer. parent one day. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, okay, but I was reading some of the clues, and one of them was a poem. That he published, and okay, the poem part of it just says, "Begin where the warm waters halt. Take it in the canyon down, not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there, it is no place for the meek. The end is drawing over nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high." So I was like, "That actually sounds pretty dangerous." <laughs> Even though he's claiming that it's not in a dangerous place, but just like, how insane would it be to try and solve these riddles and try and find the treasure? I wonder if I hit a treasure with a bunch of riddles and no one found it for a long time, if I would be like, ooh, I hit it really well, or if I'd be like, my clues must be terrible. (laughs) Well, there have been people who said that they've solved all the riddles to a T and the, the treasure's not there. So a lot of people are wondering if it's a hoax. Yeah. Which is, would be kind of a bummer. But, so that was one of them. One big bummer after another. Let's hear more. <laughs> okay, so Thomas Beale, this is the Beale treasure. In 1816, Beale claimed to have found about $63 million by today's standard, standards worth of gold and silver while mining in the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And he was with a group of people and they all wanted to make sure that their next of kin found the treasure. So Thomas Beale wrote three, like, codes or like um they're like kind of like ciphers and he wrote three of them and one of them if you solved it would describe the exact location of the treasure the second um kind of cryptogram thing would would describe the contents of the treasure and then the third cryptogram was a list of the men who found the treasure and their next of kin and so he gave all the ciphers to a Virginian innkeeper and told him to wait 10 years before opening it. But then he disappeared and he was never seen again. That's creepy. Yeah. So the innkeeper finally opened the messages that he gave him and he spent years trying to decode these cryptograms and they only managed to break the second one. And um, so in 1885, the innkeeper published a pamphlet detailing the cryptograms and wait which one was the second one what was in it yeah okay so they broke that one okay and that one said that inside it was gold silver and jewels in a vault six feet below the surface of the ground mm-hmm. but he was basically like telling people try and solve these codes and no one could and like to this day no one has been able to solve the other two ciphers but the way they solved the, the second one they decrypted it using a copy of the Declaration of Independence, which is kind of cool. So, like... Did I ever tell you I went to cryptology camp when I was little? No! <laughs> That's amazing! So, what do you do in cryptology camp? Well, so it was like a three-week nerd camp, basically, and our final... I had a final... There were tests. <laughs> our final was a scavenger hunt, and I finished first. I was really proud of myself. Oh, my God! But, um... So, it's funny. Have you done those, like, escape the room things? I did it with you. Oh, yeah. Okay, well... We did the Escape the Zombie. That's true. That was the first one I ever did. But I did another one this other time with some friends, and there was some... It was basically, like, one of my intro code-breaking class things. So I, like, looked at this thing, and I was like, oh, try this code, like, 3724 or whatever. And they were like, it worked. How did you know? And I was like, I just... I went to cryptology (laughs) camp. We can't go into that now. And you know how they watch you while you're in there? But the people came in yeah. at the end of the class and they were just laughing. They were like, cryptology camp? That's a thing. <laughs> I was like, hey, we got out on time. <laughs> but Oh my god, you could have been in the Bletchley circle. <laughs> <laughs> it was really cool. <laughs> so I need to go find these old cryptograms and see how I how it how I do. <laughs> Those rooms are so much fun. Mm-hmm. I loved the one we did in Chicago. 
I just did one like at New Year's and we were all locked up in handcuffs at the beginning of it in a dark room <gasps> with blindfolds. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Except I like was freaking out before we even, cause you know, they'd bring one of us in at a time to set it up and put us in mm-hmm. handcuffs. And I was like, don't leave me out here all alone. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get out of the handcuffs? Um, they were like these magnets. Well, I can't, okay. I can't tell you. Can't okay. Tell you. That's true. But I might do it one day. Yeah. We, but we did get out. I thought just having a zombie in the room was bad, but being blindfolded and put in handcuffs just adds, like, a very sinister element to it. The zombie was one of the cooler ones, though, just because it was so interactive. Like, I haven't had one with an actor in the room since then. And, the and the and like, the codes and riddles were so fun. Yeah. And even... I'm like, proud of I, us that we got out. Like, when we were all... Because we got out near the end, and we were, like, all at the edge of the room. Because if the zombie touched you, you, like, were dead yeah. in this game. And so we were, like, throwing things across the room to each other, like, all <laughs> against the wall until we got everything solved. I think at one point Lauren was on a chair, like, on her tiptoes trying to get away from it. She was basically, like, climbing the wall trying to avoid being touched by it. Yeah. But we did get uh, out. It was really cool. Yeah. With time to spare. That was my first one ever. Me too. Actually, that's the only one I've ever done, but I would love to do it again. Yeah. Well, come visit me. I'll take you to one. <laughs> you can use your cryptology skills. I went to cryptology <laughs> camp, so. I think I should only do escape I've never not gotten you out. from now on, because I'll be guaranteed to get out. Um, okay, this last one is John Mosby's Hidden Treasure. Yeah. So he was a Confederate soldier okay. known as the Grey Ghost, and he was known for organizing these, like, guerrilla warfare strikes against Union soldiers. Okay. So he would, like, slip behind Union lines, and then he would steal supplies, and he would capture prisoners, and he would basically steal back all the stuff that the Union soldiers had taken from Southern homes. So he led a raid. So it's like a Robin Hood. Yeah, kind of. Except he was on the wrong side. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but still, stealing back, even if it's the wrong person, stealing back things that someone took from your home still feels kind of right, yeah. I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Okay. I mean, okay, whatever. Well, He was on the right this. side in his, in his mind. Yeah. Okay, so in 1863, he um, led a mission, and he and his men captured 32 soldiers, 58 horses, and 350000 today $6 million worth of gold, silver, and jewelry. And... So they rode out of town, but he his spies were up ahead, and they told him that a large group of Union soldiers were up ahead. So they decided, rather than being kind of, um, you know, loaded down with all this treasure, they buried it. So he buried the treasure between two pine trees and marked the trees with an X. And this is in Fairfax County, Virginia. And okay. they said that he went back later, and he sent seven of his most trusted men to recover the treasure, and they were all caught and hanged by Union soldiers. So now the treasure's still out there. And if you want to take a furlough from work, I'm just saying we could go out and try and find it. <laughs> My cryptology skills won't come in handy if it's just trees with X's on it, though. That's true. <laughs> I am thinking now, though, instead of, like, leaving my whatever money I managed to scrape together at the end of my life to my kids, I should leave them a treasure hunt. (laughs) Oh, they'll hate you. First of all, they'll be like, we all became figure skaters because that's what you wanted us to do. No, I'm going to make one solve treasures. My favorite one is going to be the cryptology one. (laughs) But I'll bury it under some ice somewhere so the figure skaters can get their pretty or... Yeah, okay. Okay, I need to think this through some more. I'm not sold on this idea. Oh, man. That would be such a mean trick. Yeah. Wait, actually, my parents listen to this. That's a terrible idea to all of our listeners. Please don't do that. (laughs) Unless you're going to leave money to me and you weren't planning to in the first place. Or just make the code, like, really easy so you know we'll get it. And then we'll feel super cool. Yeah, if it was, like, if three weeks of cryptology camp could solve it then we're good but three cryptograms is too many just one and use the declaration of independence so we know how to how to crack it or one of our ya fiction books that would be good (gasps) that would be such a great idea (laughs) oh man oh man (laughs) our next instead of an instagram contest we're gonna have a treasure hunt oh my god i love it oh can we do can we can we actually do that where we come up with a cipher and then we use a ya book and they have to crack it that way yeah we should totally do that okay oh my god okay Good idea. We'll do that for our next um, giveaway. Instead of tagging people, they have to solve the code. 
Yep. Done. All right. I'm so excited. Okay. Okay, so that... I had another piece of research, but I can save it for next week. Is that okay? I know it's never close to an hour. No, that's fine. I talked a lot. We got... The treasure stuff was really good. I, um... I walk to work. I, like, live next door to work, but I don't live in a place where people walk to work, so I'm basically the only one who's ever doing this. There's not even a sidewalk. I just, like, walk through this field. Oh, no. And I found 40 bucks the other day, and I felt, like, so happy. And then I was like, I probably dropped this yesterday. Is <laughs> that probably mine? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you go back and look for more? Because that's what I would have done. Oh, no, but I should. T- tomorrow I'll look for more. Okay, yeah, keep your eyes peeled. Okay, so do we want to talk about this third book? Yeah, there's only one more. Why aren't more books quadrologies or whatever the proper term is? Oh, tetralogy. Ugh, I don't like it still. I don't either. We're we're sticking with quadrology. Okay. We know it's wrong, but we like it. (laughs) Well, okay, it's a long book and it has small print. Okay, that makes me feel better. And we're going to read up to chapter 42. It's called The Worst, and right before that, there is a page that says Arrival plus 48 Hours. And the third book is called Dreams of Gods and Monsters. Ah, yes. I should have said that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't even know if we've told our listeners, but my copy of the second book is the hardback one I have, and so two weeks ago, I tried to tell Marissa we should read to chapter 42, (laughs) and she was like, no. (laughs) And then we had, like, this long debate, and then I realized I was looking at the wrong book because I just assumed the third one was the hardback one. I was so concerned. I thought that I was measuring wrong because the way I figure out what half the book is is I use this really scientific method where I hold the book up and then I just part it where it looks like halfway with my fingers. I do a lot of math, actually. Like, way too much math for for us ending up at the same point, usually. That doesn't surprise me. We both use our own methods and we arrive at the same point, so it it works out. Okay. Should I read the back of the book? Please do. Okay. What power can bruise the sky? The New York Times bestselling Daughter of Smoke and Bone trilogy comes to a thrilling conclusion as from the streets of Rome to the caves of the Kirin and beyond, humans, chimera, and seraphim strive, love, and die in an epic theater that transcends good and evil, right and wrong, friend and enemy. Hmm. I feel like that's not very much information, but... They, the backs of the books are kind of sparse. Yeah. Oh. I, I kind of like that, though. Okay, I did have a question for you, real quick. Yeah, what? So, I really liked at the end of this book when Mick is talking about the three things to live for. Do you remember that part? No, I don't even remember that. What were they? He was just talking about, um, like, how much he loved Susanna and it was, like, mm-hmm. my top three reasons for living. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I do remember this now. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of, like, what would my top three reasons for living be? If we didn't include, like, the obvious, like, you know, your family and friends. So we don't have to answer now, but I was just, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw that out there. Okay, we're going to start next week with our top three reasons for living. I like that. That will open on a very positive, uplifting note. <laughs> Good. We need, we need some of that. After our one big bummer after another. Okay. Well, um, thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you want to reach out to us, we are at mnktalkya at gmail.com. Everything is spelled out. And then we're also on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. Um, and we would love to hear from you. And if you want to, you can give us a rating on iTunes. It helps our visibility and we would really appreciate it. And I know we've had the promo in the beginning of a few of the episodes, but, uh, little bit ago we were on two pods a day so you guys should check out other podcasts that they promote but um it was pretty exciting for us so for sure cool all right i have a joke for you oh my god i always forget about the joke <laughs> i know i get really nervous because i like get really nervous when it's my turn to tell a joke so i looked up angle jokes this time because i thought it was funny <laughs> that you accidentally looked them up last time but now i'm nervous that you already read them because Instead of angel you looked joke? up angle jokes oh boy no i I'm sure I, I won't get any of the angle jokes. <laughs> okay, I laughed a lot at all of these, but this is totally my kind of humor. So, what shape do you use to catch somebody? Oh, I don't know. A trapezoid. <laughs> okay, this one I actually thought was funnier, but James told me it wasn't as funny. I'm going to tell you a second one because... Okay, okay, good. What shape has all of its angles destroyed? Oh, I don't know. A, wait, oh, a circle. 
a rect angle. <laughs> that one's better. I like that one. I know. I thought it was funnier, too. Maybe James didn't get it. I'm just kidding, James. I'm sure you got it. Oh, those are really good. <laughs> Angel jokes and angle jokes. <laughs> Anyways, enjoy some geometry humor and go solve our future scavenger hunt once we figure We're out. We're going to start putting it. it together right now. It's going to take us a long time. <laughs> Be patient. All right. Buy bookworms and treasure hunters. And go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.